Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and in this series, we've given you an overview of ecology and evolutionary biology, highlighting some of the articles published in our issue, and interviewed Stephen Stearns, a Yale professor and an expert in evolutionary medicine. This episode is the last and third episode devoted to YJBM's December 2018 issue on ecology and evolution, which you can find on YJBM's website or PubMed. I'm your host, Neil Ravindra, a fifth-year graduate student in the Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry Department at Yale and the managing editor of YJBM. And I'm your co-host, Karthika Selvaganesan, a first-year graduate student in biomedical engineering at Yale, and with us today to talk about a broad array of topics in evolutionary biology is Dr. Richard Prum, the William Robertson Co-Professor of Ornithology in Yale's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Hi, Professor Prum. Tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you and uh, what do you do? Uh, as, uh, as described, I'm a professor here in, in ecology and evolutionary biology. And my uh, research is really sort of evolutionary ornithology. So that's uh, the evolution of birds. Um, and uh, over the years, that's gotten broader and broader, uh, <laughs> uh, including all sorts of topics in social behavior, morphology, uh, phylogenetics and relatedness of birds, uh, the evolution of their plumage colors and uh, the physics and chemistry of plumage colors, bird song, uh, lots, of, lots, of, lots of topics in between. A huge array there. Um, and, and what about like what, what are you working on at the moment that, uh, that's particularly – you know, well, making we, you excited. We've been, work, we've been working uh, right now on the evolution of decadence uh, in, in birds, how uh, mate choice might make everybody in the population worse off. Uh, we're working on some physical questions and um, uh, super black feathers, feathers that are structurally uh, absorbing, uh, where absorption is, is, is aided by, by structure. And uh, we're working on some mathematical population genetics of sexual conflict in bowerbirds. Uh, and biomechanics of the avian feather vein. So we've done a lot of uh, tomography, of three-dimensional uh, tomography uh, of bird feathers at Argonne National Labs in, in near Chicago. And this is uh, – so we've created data sets that are one and a half millimeters cubed where we have 650 nanometer voxel size. So these are uh, sort of excruciatingly uh, detailed looks at, at, at feathers. Uh, and we're using that for optics and biophysical and biomechanical um, uh, inquiry. Stepping back a little, um, we kind of covered that a lot of your research is focused with avian biology. So what led you to the study of birds and why are they more telling or unique as a conduit to study evolutionary biology as compared to like mammals or reptiles? I started bird watching at about the age of 10 and really have never considered uh, doing anything else in my life. At this point, I'm uh, basically unfit for any other kind of profession. And luckily, there is a place uh, for people like me, and that's uh, academia, the university, the museum. Now, a lot of people are question-driven biologists. They think that the way to drive a career is to find the most important and fascinating question and, and, and then pick the best situation, the best uh, uh, example, the best uh, species, the best context in which to study it. And uh, I'm just not one of those people. I am driven by my own personal curiosity for birds. And my task is really to take the arcane and sometimes ignored or forgotten pieces of bird biology and somehow create science that um, other people care about or other people need to care about. So that's, that's really how I operate. And, uh, and really, to me, the birds are the muse. They, they ask the questions. And uh, I'm just uh, lucky that uh, they're still unanswered or, or waiting for somebody to, to focus on them. And, and there's another uh, bird enthusiast that, that was a scientist, obviously, Darwin. And, and one of your recent books is really – it talks a lot about Darwin's dangerous idea. So I'm not going to explain any further. I'll let you do the explaining. But what, what is Darwin's dangerous idea and what made it um, so dangerous? Yeah. So really that's a, that's a, a play on. Uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, who is a philosopher of science and uh, especially uh, philosophy of mind, uh, at Tufts University, 
published a book on Darwin, Darwin's dangerous idea. And, and his uh, dangerous idea was adaptation by natural selection. It was really about how uh, the power of natural selection to explain the world um, has been underestimated. And, and so uh, that was his take. So in, in, my, in my writings, I, I have uh, appealed to uh, Darwin's really dangerous idea, uh, implying, <laughs> implying that, it, that, that it was uh, way more dangerous than adaptation by natural selection. In fact, so dangerous that for in lo- many ways it had to be drummed out of evolutionary biology. Uh, it had to be eliminated from uh, what we uh, generally refer to as you know, neo-Darwinian synthesis or the Darwinian biology. And the, the idea uh, grows out of Darwin's work on sexual selection where he proposed that animals through their social and sexual choices are uh, essentially agents in their own evolution that by uh, preferring to mate with individuals they like uh, or uh, to socially associate with individuals they like or to feed on flowers and fruits that are memorably uh, rewarding, uh, that they are agents in the evolution of beauty in nature. And so uh, this is a straight-up uh, aesthetic evolution, and it implies that animal and animal subjectivity is a force in nature. Now, this was a radically uh, revolutionary idea in 1871 when Darwin published it in The Descent of Man, um, and, uh, and it still is in many ways. Uh, so the uh, Darwin's really dangerous idea is the idea of uh, uh, animal agency and subjectivity as a, as a force in nature. Yeah, and, and and I apologize for confusing it with the dangerous versus the really dangerous idea, but I, I know that you know Alfred Ru- Russell Wallace is still very influential today, and there are still some some debates about aesthetic evolution. What what are the implications um, of a- aesthetic evolution today? Well, um, you know, I I would credit Wallace with having been uh, the originator of what we can now refer to as adaptationism. And that's the, the, the concept that adaptation by natural selection is a strong force which dominates um, all the important things that happen in evolutionary biology or in evolutionary history, right? And we can make a quick comparison to, uh, to economics where there's a similar clique, uh, intellectual clique of, of folks who think that, you know, free markets – or free market uh, theory and free market forces will drive markets, economic markets, inevitably toward a certain kind of efficiency, ignoring lots of other things. So, so one of the biggest implications of the Wallacean Darwinian debate is um, how dominant of a force is adaptation by natural selection, and 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 I find myself in the odd situation of both. Um, arguing that uh, a lot of what we associate with uh, adaptation is it, it does not explain the, the natural world, and that Darwin uh, is actually responsible uh, not only for the theory of uh, natural selection, adaptation by natural selection, but he's responsible for the alternative, uh, which is um, you know the idea that uh, that beauty might be its own its own force in nature. So uh, I'm arguing that Darwin was both more creative. Uh, more insightful uh, and should be more influential in our biology today. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Wallacean forces of Wallacianism, the neo-Wallacians, <laughs> are powerful and, and intellectually influential. And so this is a long haul. But uh, I'm in it for the long haul, so that, that's okay. <laughs> um, could you kind of explain the theory of aesthetic ev- evolution? You kind of touched upon it. Um, could you maybe describe it a little more? And um, what are some of like the challenges to that? What I propose is that aesthetic evolution uh, occurs whenever there is um, uh, sensory perception, subjective or cognitive evaluation, and choice. And those choices can be sexual choices, social choices, or even ecological choices. That whenever you have those three things, there's an emergent, a novel mode of evolution uh, that I refer to as aesthetic evolution. And I refer to it as, as aesthetic following Darwin in that um, the things that evolve are functioning not in, in the objective uh, you know, physical world uh, but in the perceptions and evaluations, the brains, if you will, of other individuals. So if you imagine the beaks of birds, they, 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 they evolve to uh, grab food, crack open seeds, <laughs> process things, right? Those are all mechanical features. So we can imagine being able to measure and, and, and uh, explain uh, how they might be objectively better from one or the other for, for different ecological tasks. But um, the songs of birds uh, evolve to function in the perceptions of other birds. 
and sure, they have to propagate through the air. Uh, they have to do some uh, physical things. But that doesn't come anywhere near to explaining their richness and diversity. And so um, this uh, aesthetic evolution, I think, happens in a lot of different places in the world or in, in the natural world. So flowers appealing to pollinators, fruits uh, that are subject to selection by, by, by frugivores, animals that eat fruit, the evolution of courtship display, sexual displays, but also social displays, uh, who individuals hang out with or don't. Another context that's kind of interesting is um, – uh, baby birds, uh, the evolution of, if you will, the evolution of cuteness, which is about, uh, you know, every time a, a mama, a daddy bird come to the nest, the birds open up their necks and open up their mouths and, 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 and start uh, chirping, you know, feed me, feed me, basically, right? And um, those birds are, have a sensory perception, they have an evaluation, and they have a choice. Which f- mouth do I put this worm down? And as a result of that, uh, happening, there's a whole rich set of signals that occur only in baby bird mouths, right? <laughs> right? And, and, and they are uh, cute in the sense that they are rewarding to the parents to interact with. The parents like them in the same way that, uh, that, that, that the cuteness of babies has co-evolved with our ability to, 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 to relate to it, right? So there's a broad array of areas where aesthetic evolution happens in nature. I think it happens by natural and sexual selection. Um, and it requires, you know, that uh, that or it implies that animals are agents in their in, in evolution. Um, and so, uh, what are the challenges to that? Well, uh, m- many. One is to get my first to get my colleagues to to imagine that there is a, a realm of, of such behavior uh, that that is worthwhile. You know, I think that this is the right way to go about it because if you look at the diversity uh, of those things that function through perception as opposed to the real world, you see a big difference in how diverse they are, right? Things that function through cognition, through perception in the brains of, of animals func- are widely variable. And what that means is that the, uh, not only is the, the signal free to vary, but the response to the signal is free to vary, right? That the criteria for success and the nature of the signal are both uh, uh, free to vary. And that gives rise to a phenomenon that we call coevolution. Frequently, you see that the signal may be arbitrary, that is not indicate any information, uh, but it actually uh, co-varies with the preference for it. That is that uh, bird songs and the preferences that female birds have for those songs are actually shaping one another over time, right? So that co-evolutionary process is another aspect of aesthetic evolution. Um, How do I get more colleagues to buy in? I think it's by poking at the, the problems that the current models have for explaining this. Most of my uh, colleagues who would be uh, uh, proudly adaptationist would be in the business of explaining away the sensory or aesthetic elements of these same aspects of the world uh, as somehow efficient, as somehow adaptive, as somehow uh, um, indicating you know, quality, uh, objective quality. Uh, the challenge, of course, is uh, to uh, get people to start thinking this is an important question and then figure out how to motivate them to uh, pursue uh, research in this area. Yeah, I have two questions on that. Like what would you say the, I don't know, the percentage of acceptance of this theory is? And and also, you know, how would you kind of relate aesthetic evolution to molecular genetics specifically? I don't know. I, I, I don't have any poll numbers on my <laughs> colleagues. Uh, but, but, but my book, which came out in 2017, you know, The Evolution of Beauty, uh, was um, – it takes a while to get book reviews out in scientific journals. But, but it's now been reviewed in Animal Behavior and Evolution, two major journals in the field. And both those reviews were, 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 were horrible. They were, mm-hmm. they, were, they were really negative. Right? <laughs> so so oh, no, uh, that's, either, uh, that's, either, <laughs> yeah. that's either a problem, uh, you know, that's either a bug or a feature, right? Um, but then maybe we should say that the, the rest of the public really liked it, right? It was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Yeah. Everybody – somehow everybody admits that it's well-written. What I don't think is happening – is I don't think some of my scientific colleagues are reading it, right? In other words, it is uh, provocative. I mean, right? I'm, I'm trying mm-hmm. to uh, articulate the real problems that we have in evolutionary biology and, and what I think is a good way to solve them. Um, but I think people get 
read or start reading it and they become so responsive negatively to what I'm saying that they can't actually concentrate on what I say. So I think a lot of the negative reviews are not actually based on the book. Uh, there are responses that aren't in there. Yeah, so maybe, maybe it's like the – maybe it helps to talk about like the, an example. Like the peacock feather is, is a classic example, even driving Darwin kind of mad, right? Um, but it, it clearly is not great for health or fitness rather. Um, but it is very beautiful. I, 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 even from the, the female mate choice perspective, it's, it's beautiful. So does that – Signify some sort of genetic component um, that, and is genetics kind of susceptible, or can the Land Kirkpatrick equilibrium to get technical for a little bit? Um, can that be applied to gen- genetics and not just traits? Yeah. First, first, let's imagine how how uh, preference is working, right? So uh, we all agree that that in in, in birds. Uh, and, and other uh, similar organisms that there are uh, uh, mating preferences that are genetically based, that inheritable, and that have evolved, right? And they have interesting, as we know, most species prefer uh, the displays of the uh, of the individuals of that species, right? So they've co-evolved, right? The, the, uh, to correspond, uh, the real question in, in evolutionarily is whether or not this kind of selection gives rise to an adaptive process, and by that I mean. Uh, are the males that are successful, are the individuals that are successful at attracting mates, are they actually better, right, than, than other individuals? Well, most of my adaptation colleagues, since uh, going back to Wallace, would say that the reason why these ornaments can evolve is because they indicate objective information about quality. An right. honest signal or so. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. That they're honest. It's like a, a biomatch.com profile filled with all this information <laughs> that individuals need to know, right? Mm-hmm. How much money does he have in the bank? Does he come from a good egg? Uh, does he have a good diet? Does he smoke? What is he smoking? You know, all sorts of stuff that, that mates <laughs> might want to know, right? And, and the alternative, of course, is that it's, there's no information at all, that it's just beautiful. That it's like high fashion, that it's not actually indicating anything uh, but the latest thing. Now, of course, in this case, the fashion is genetical, not cultural, though plenty of birds actually have cultural evolution too in their bird songs, but that's, a, that's another topic. So the real question is uh, how, does this, how would adaptive information arise and is it true? And the way it arises is if, if, if mating preferences are under natural selection, right? In order to work the tail – the song has to be correlated with some extrinsic information, something else, and that something else could be good genes that are heritable, heritable by both by all offspring. So that might be resistance to diseases, or genes that are great for uh, foraging or migration or you know survival in some way, right? Uh, or it could be direct benefits. One of the things that it could be, it could say uh, having. Uh, a certain song or a call could be associated with a really good territory, lots of worms for babies, right? Uh, and so these two things, good genes and direct benefits, are the way in which uh, a trait could become associated with information and therefore be adaptive, mm. right? So uh, most of my colleagues are so fascinated by this theory that they assume it and they see their mission is to demonstrate that it's true. Uh, but I think this is kind of a faith-based <laughs> way to go about research. And all sorts of things in other areas of evolutionary biology tell us that we need null models before we proceed with uh, research on adaptation. So, for example, in genetics, it used to be that if you found or assumed a genetic variation, because at that point they couldn't really measure it, uh, but if you found it, you would assume, oh, that this means that it is selected for. Right? It must mm-hmm. be maintained by uh, adaptation. Well, then came the neutral theory, uh, which developed a whole rich set of predictions about how things could evolve in the absence of selection. So the, the neutral theory has got all the bells and whistles but without natural selection. So it makes all these rich predictions that we can use to then say, is molecular evolution occurring by natural selection? Right? Same as occurred in ecology with, uh, with uh, a community assembly. And so my gamut in this sexual selection area is to propose that the Darwinian view, the arbitrary view, is the null model. Right? That the burden of proof is on the adaptationist as it is in ecology and elsewhere in genetics. And uh, this is the uh, tough medicine that my colleagues don't want – to, he- to hear. So it's not surprising that uh, one of the reviews of my book, the null model wasn't even mentioned, uh, right, which is sort of the main point, <laughs> if you will. And, and the other review, it was greatly criticized for all these things. And they admitted that we needed one, but didn't actually propose one that was an alternative. <laughs> so, you know, there are some problems with that response. And, and, uh, but that's where, that's where we are now. 
It, just, just to go on the null model so our listeners make understand it, it it's the land Kirkpatrick equilibrium. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. That's the null model, right? That's, and, that's my proposal for the null model. And so uh, what that states is what happens when there's genetic variation in trait, like tail length, and genetic variation in preference, like uh, preferences for shorter or longer tails. And what's interesting is that one of the things about preference, preference is a kind of genetic variation that will go out into nature and reassociate, recombine through sexual uh, choice with other genetic variation. So what happens is that the individuals who like long tails will find mates with long tails. And the individuals who like short tails will find mates with short tails. And the result is a covariation or a correlation between genetic variation in these two areas. Uh, that covariance will actually drive uh, subsequent evolution because when females choose that mate with a long tail, they're actually indirectly selecting on ge- correlated genetic variation for uh, preferences for long tails. And uh, we know those kind of genetic correlations happen all the time. Uh, they're not exotic. So the Landy Kirkpatrick equilibrium basically is the description of the mathematical consequences of that simple model. The problem is that the consequences are rich and highly variable. Now, uh, people might criticize the null uh, for that reason. However, nature didn't create itself in order to make science easy, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you can't complain with, you know, the way uh, uh, evolution occurs, right? Uh, and so people are struggling to try to recharacterize the null model or the Landy-Kirkpatrick equilibrium as an inappropriate null. And, but I think they just haven't wake, awakened and smelled the coffee. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is what uh, – the opportunity nature provides for us. And if it adds a high barrier uh, to demonstrating adaptation by natural selection, then so be it. Uh, that's, that's the challenge we have in front of us. You kind of talked about like females preferring long tails or short tails, and that's kind of driving the evolution. So does it have uh, – does a similar kind of idea um, have implications in how we as humans culturally or socially define certain characteristics? Or does it even like go as – far to other species, just not just birds. Yeah. So uh, the last third of my book, I'm really an ornithologist, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's, that's what uh, I started there. Uh, but the last third of my book is about human sexual evolution. Uh, why would I stick my neck out in this way? <laughs> right? you, know. you know, the answer, one was that the, the, uh, the Wallisian view, the adaptationist view of human sexuality has been so... Uh, pervasive, so influential, and I think so flawed that I felt it was a responsibility uh, to carry through. Uh, And then the aesthetic uh, evolutionary uh, perspective was, I think, so fruitful, so productive that it was also very worthwhile. And so uh, talking about human sexuality is complicated, right? (laughs) Because people are complicated, right? And so that's a long conversation. So, But I could say a few caveats, right? That first of all, what went into human Sexual evolution is a lot. We have uh, uh, male choice and female choice. We have male-male competition and female-female competition. Uh, We have uh, sexual conflict over both of those. And then on top of that, we have culture. So it's not surprising that discussions of human evolution, sexual evolution get complicated because we are uh, as complicated as any species (laughs) gets. But in the book, I argue, yes, that these theories are are strikingly relevant, that the, the, the adaptationist view represented by uh, evolutionary psychology uh, as a field has, uh, has uh, misconstrued and misconceived of human evolution and that the aesthetic theory does a really good job and also that there's a, a really critical role uh, for sexual conflict and the resolution of sexual conflict through aesthetic uh, choice. Uh, in, in explaining human evolution. In other words, I think in, in, in human evolution, female mate choice for, for characters that transform maleness in, in, in important ways were really key to why we're all here being humans and not uh, in the jungles uh, like chimpanzees and gorillas. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have kind of a question about, you know, are there any birds that really confuse you? And it kind of stems from this idea of if, um, if you need to explain all of the various characteristics that you see that are beautiful and adaptation doesn't seem to provide the totality of that explanation or it's, it's not enough. Is there really an example that that is the nail in the coffin saying that you need not only natural selection by adaptation but also aesthetic evolution? Is there a bird basically that maybe made choice caused it, 
the, the species to kill itself. <laughs> yeah. Just to start, I have to say that are there any birds that confuse you? That, that's one of the most interesting questions I've gotten in a long time. I really, I really, I really loved it mm. uh, because the state of confusion is so uh, fundamental to scientific inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. Admitting your confusion and your insufficiency of your current tools. And I'd say that I've been confused for a long time and, 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 and it has this major function in, 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 in how you get to understanding, right? right. It's, it's the initial state. So yeah, I've had this experience a lot. And, and it's only by actually regarding birds uh, individually as species or individually as animals or in aggregate through phylogenetically that that you can look at them long enough to get confused because if you just sort of glance at them and say, oh, yeah, we, we know all about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, at, at home, I compare this to something I do at home, which is like uh, looking at the refrigerator and everybody else says, oh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing, to, there's nothing to make, right? We can't make dinner. Let's go out or let's buy. And I'll look at the kids and, and it's like, what can I make? It's like, you know, I don't know, like MacGyver, but with food, you know, you, you know? And, and I love that. And I think that's sort of some, some same way with science, right? Looking at a bunch of things where people think there's an explanation, finding an opportunity. And that opportunity often starts with confusion, right? So a lot of these uh, um, confusing states have been important in, in, in my work. And one of the most confusing ever uh, was a bird called the clumwing mannequin, which is a South American bird, and it's a big character in uh, in Chapter Four of my book. And 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 that bird is producing a an incredibly harmonic, electronic sounding sound with its wing feathers. It's sort of like pick pick wang. You know, <laughs> quality. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, uh, in, in a way, uh, what's interesting is that it's a very very pure sound. Uh, at 1,400, 1,500 hertz with odd and, integer, odd and even integer harmonics. All the harmonics are piled up. So it's, it sounds a lot uh, – somebody said recently, he said, wow, it sounds like that alarm when a piece of equipment is backing up. You know, beep, 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 beep. It's got this electronical quality. But it's made with feathers, right? So what's with that? And how and why and all that. So that was a very confusing bird. And to make a long story short, we figured out that it is stridulating, uh, which means that the feathers are rubbing together during the production of the sound as it waves its wings above its back. Um, so much like a violin bow provides a mechanical stimulus to the, to the string to make it oscillate at the frequency of its intrinsic sound-producing qual- uh, properties, uh, these feathers interact to make one of the feathers resonate at the frequency of the sound, right? Uh, and that harmonic structure is part of that, part of that, predicted by that. Um, in, in subsequent work, we started after some of that mystery is like, well, then we get why and more and how and that. So we, uh, myself and students, former students, uh, have uh, uh, looked at the anatomy. We found out that, uh, by the way, this, this sound is a courtship display. So uh, my student, Kim Bostwick, uh, showed in subsequent work that uh, my former student that um, – that beauty is not only skin deep. In order to make these bizarre sounds, the bird had uh, evolved uh, uh, incredible novelties in its wing bones, uh, weird additional structures to hold the feathers. Uh, the bone was incredibly increased in size and shape. Uh, and then also the bone is solid, right? So these are birds with solid wing bones. That's interesting because there are no other species known that where the wing bones are solid, you know, like ivory, just absolutely solid calcium. And so um, that's a cool thing because uh, not only do all flying birds have 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 hollow wing bones, even Tyrannosaurus rex or or Velociraptor had hollow limb bones, right? So this is a feature of the avian or feature of the skeleton that predates the origin of birds or the origin of flight, right? Uh, and these. Birds are giving it up in order to sing. So that means that this have a lot of costs, not just material costs. These things are hard to fly with. We don't have data on that, but you can see it. It's quite obvious. And also nature gives us data because one reason why all wing bones are hollow and have very similar shapes is because they're maintained by natural selection on flight to, to maintain that structure. So recently we found that females also have these incredibly weird wing bones. They're not solid like the male, but they are really huge, uh, three or four times uh, the width 
or stoutness of closely related uh, wing bones, in this case, the ulna, the trailing bone in the forelimb, right? And that's really, that's really striking because the, uh, the male cost could be rationalized as a way of reinforcing honesty, what many people have referred to as an honest handicap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. it could be that the wing sound is honest, showing real quality, because you need to be really high quality to make a wing bone that's so extreme and to survive with it. But if the females have are paying the costs too, uh, they're never singing a wing song. They're never benefiting. Yet they are actually demonstrably made worse as a result of this, uh, this architecture, this additional feature of the, of the wings, right? And so um, we think – I think this is really sort of checkmate in the, the discussion with, uh, with adaptations. I think this is the example that cannot be explained by adaptations made choice because in this case, what I think is going on, the females selecting males that make the beautiful wing songs and of course her male offspring inherit the capacity to make those songs which other females will find popular. That's the indirect genetic benefit of mate choice that drives aesthetic evolution. But her daughters are also going to inherit genetic variation for weird wing bones and they're not going to be made better off. Now, this can't evolve because the sexual advantage of the males may be offsetting the um, – the, uh, the cost to the females, uh, at least one generation at a time. But there is, in theory, and we've gone through the population genetics, there is, in theory, nothing that could prevent this uh, necessarily from preventing extinction, right? So aesthetic evolution, uh, mate choice, uh, not only uh, may not be adaptive, it can actually be maladaptive. That is, it can make everybody even the males and the females who are making the choices worse off. Uh, and that's a new result and I think it's one um, that really demonstrates um, that uh, natural selection is insufficient uh, to describe nature and also that we need to th- conceptually separate sexual selection from natural selection. Yeah, yeah I, I really like this example of, of the club-winged uh, the club-winged mannequin, right? Because it, it seems to say that it – Adaptation by natural selection fails to account for the, this observation, but it, but I think why it makes people uncomfortable is because it seems like there are many cases where um, you can adapt a trait that's not aesthetically pleasing. There are many more examples where sexual evolution can't really explain, or or mate choice can't really explain the the presence of a trait. Um, but there's only really one strong example of. Um, sexual selection being very important for what we see or observe in nature. And and the other thing is that there is kind of an explanation by adaptation by natural selection, right? That if all else being equal, if I can perform at the same level – sorry, I'm not trying to personalize this. (laughs) If a bird can perform at the same level and they show a handicap, then all of a sudden they seem to have – extra strength or whatever. And yeah, yeah, the interesting So it's kind of like I guess like twofold. The question is are there – is that really a, a failure of explanation or <laughs> absolutely yeah okay, okay. I think it's a failure <laughs> you know in other words uh, I mean yeah. uh, first on the handicap side how does the handy so this was yeah. called the handicap principle mm-hmm. is it it, the idea uh, that that the cost of the display uh, can mechanistically be related to how it maintains its honesty right because uh, because uh, by requiring the male to pony up a bunch of resources and also to take additional risks because the peacock's tail for example not only does it take a lot of resources to grow it but you got to not be eaten by a, a, a tiger or, or an eagle yeah, sure. while you're hauling it around right so you got to both make it and survive with it right so these these kind of costs uh, were thought to be the kind of thing that would reinforce honesty and the thing that you want to guard against is a male that doesn't have good genes or doesn't provide direct benefits from being able to fake it, right? Mm-hmm, Make right. that tail yeah. but not get by, right? So that's the idea. But uh, it turns out that if the costs and the benefits are correlated, uh, there's no upside. In, in the book, I describe uh, instead of the handicap principle, I called it the Smucker's principle. Okay. And the Smucker's <laughs> principle comes from these old uh, ads for Smucker's jelly where they used to say, with a name like Smucker's, it's got to be good. <laughs> and, right. and, and this jelly had the name exactly – um, or, or that slogan exactly embodies the handicap principle, which is like this jelly has to be really better than other jelly in order to survive this odd off-putting name, Smuckers. And so what's fascinating is that this uh, thought experiment was conducted by the Saturday Night Live in a fake commercial in the <laughs> 70s, which I saw in high school. And, and I'll just note that this proved to me, you know, you live long enough, you realize 
uh, not all that stupid stuff you did in high school was also stupid. That there was actually an upside to watching Saturday Night Live because I laughed so hysterically. I never forgot it. And then and all these decades later, I get to deploy it in, in science communication. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this ad, you know, Jane Curtin comes out and says, with a name like Fluckers, it's got to be good. Fluckers. Remember, Fluckers jelly. And then, you know, uh, Ackroyd comes out and said, no, wait a minute. We got a new jelly in town. It's called Nose Hair. Oh my name God. like Nose Hair. You know it's got to be good. And, and, then, and then came, you know, Dog Vomit Monkey Pus. Mm. Oh, and, God. And, and then finally it was like Painful Rectal Itch. With a name like Painful Rectal Itch, you know it has to be good. Oh, no. <laughs> Ask for it it's today. Right? So, so, yeah. so, so yeah. what's with that? Well, what, what, of course, that's a direct prediction that if something is, is off-putting, the jelly has to even be better. And it shows two things. One, there are no jellies called dog vomit monkey pus, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and because the handicap principle is essentially devoid of aesthetic content. It's not that handicaps that are, that are specifically attractive. What's attractive is something that is subjectively liked. In any case, there's a lot of problems with the The only way to solve the, the handicap principle, is, since there is this correlation with uh, you know, the worse the name doesn't mean the better the jelly. Why is that? Well, well because the handicap principle is broken. Right? Right. The only way to make it work is to have the cost be nonlinear. Right? And this means that, that quality has to be distributed in nature the way money is in human populations. We have some people that have way, way, way extra and others that don't have quite enough at all. Right, so that a nickel is worth more to a poor person than it is to a rich man, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's the same nickel. And why is that? Because money piles up. Now, does quality pile up in nature? We have no idea. And you know what? Nobody has actually tried to test that. Uh, and you think so? Here's this. Here's this basic concept that's supporting all of honest signaling theory, and no one's even bothered to test it. Why? Because they're so interested in sort of faith-based confirmation of this, they're not actually critically looking at it. So, so that's a whole other direction of, of research that needs to be uh, gone down. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Like what do you mean about um, the buildup of quality and, and handicap? Yeah, so uh, the only way uh, if the longer tail actually takes more resources and, 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 and you're eating more, then, then you're not going to benefit long enough to be – imagine this. A, a fiancé is eager, eager to uh, get his bride to arrive at yes. And so he gives her a, a beautiful diamond ring and says, will you marry me? Well, of course, if that ring is worth five years of salary and as a result, they have to go live in a paper box, then that's obviously a bad choice. So that's the cost of the handicap, right? It's a handicap. So it has to be a survivable handicap. You have to be able to show this and still uh, put food on the table, have a roof over your head. And that's true of birds too. So the only way to break the, the, the you know, there's no upside if they're directly correlated. The only way there can be an upside is if they're non-linearly related. That is that uh, some individuals have quality to waste and some people don't have enough. And the reason why it's hard to conceive of is because we don't think of quality as even existing in that way. Is quality in organisms like money? And the whole field is based on that assumption, and there's no test of that idea. Going off of that, birds kind of aren't in isolation, right? So how are, like, the presence of humans in their environment affecting the aesthetic evolution or what they perceive as beauty or even what we see as beauty in them? Yeah, it's, it, that's, that's a really interesting question. Obviously, humans have had a big impact on, on nature and on its uh, contiguity, distribution, the environment itself, right? So there's lots of ways in which we've influenced. For example, um, there are a bunch of birds that learn their songs from other birds of the same species. So they have, they have basically culture. Uh, so the, uh, many of the songbirds that live in, in Chicago, New York, and Boston – sound different from each other, just like the people in Chicago, New York, and Boston, and for exactly the same reason, that they're learning from the environment. And Now, nobody thinks that people in Boston sound differently from New York because of adaptation to the environment, right? It's not saltier up there or windier in Chicago, and that's <laughs> right. why they sound that way, right? So this is a whole realm of evolution that we this patently know is not about adaptation by natural selection, but it happens rapidly. So there's a bunch of these birds that live in cities. And people have shown that birds that live in urban environments, very loud noises, actually transform uh, their vocal traditions. They have culturally evolved songs that that tend to have higher frequency uh, and broader frequency ranges to overcome 
the, the problem of being heard because they live in the city. And maybe that's why people in New York are so loud compared to, uh, to <laughs> others too. Who knows, right? Or maybe, maybe you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? So, um, sorry, New Yorkers. Uh, so this has been this has been this is documented. Now there is this kind of tradition in in uh, conservation biology to look at this and say, oh no, we've we've harmed uh, these birds. So these populations are somehow worse off, right? You know, oh my God, they're singing new songs. But nobody feels sad when um, – well, when English came to America and propagated new vocal traditions, that wasn't a bad thing for English, right? It might have been bad for Native Americans. But the, the increasing or transformation of culture is not uh, a problem. So I, I think that's really like an aesthetic transformation affected by human change to the environment, right? And there's, uh, there's other ones. For example, if you have habitat fragmentation – then these cultural traditions get more isolated and they probably change more rapidly. Uh, there's also just extinction in, in, in Central America and, and the Guianas um, and South America in general. There's a lot of people uh, who are interested in, in cage birds that sing beautiful songs. Mostly they're finches and it's quite interesting because you'll see – incredibly tough guys who work out – work for a living maybe in, in agriculture or physical labor uh, and on Saturday or Sunday, uh, they go down to the, to the main square with a little tiny cage with a little bird inside <laughs> and it's a big, uh, a big song competitions, right? But the, so these people collect them from out of the environment and, uh, uh, and as a result – uh, they become endangered and the population that extent become very isolated. So some cultural or some song traditions have gone extinct because of the cage bird trade. So that's like an interaction of bird aesthetics and human aesthetics. And you know what? It's the same thing. They like those songs because they're because they think humans think they're beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. So um, lots of kind of inter interactions like that. Going along the the lines of um, culture, if art co-evolves with its own evaluation, so it, it kind of in the same sense of aesthetic evolution but applied to to art now can there be ever objectively good art and and this goes off the principle that in one of your papers you talk about this very black plumage and that it highlights the blue plumage that's next to it and that color correction makes for some sort of objective beauty or something like this can that be applied to to our own cultural Kind of perception. So yeah, so let's let's that unpack principle. some of that. A lot, yeah, lot sorry. of stuff in there. Yeah, and, and, and so, Please so, elaborate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so uh, you know when I first started, well, really advocating in a modern way for Darwin's aesthetic language. I mean, Darwin talked about beauty of birds, charm, uh, the standards of beauty, you know, love, and the capacity for uh, delight. Uh, in describing birds, and so so most people thought of that as just like weird stuff that Darwin said. He's like he was getting old and dotty, and you know he was a Victorian, <laughs> and wasn't quite exact, right? And he's like, no, this is just not an accident. This is a feature. This is actually what he meant. He meant that it was about subjective experience. So when I first started doing that, uh, uh, embracing that as a scientific idea, how do I market this? I started to read in aesthetic philosophy, philosophy of art, and try to see if I could find a defense of the arbitrary in, in some of that work. So I started to look for the, for the defense of the arbitrary in, in aesthetic philosophy. And, and, and I found that the, the area was really kind of confusing. Uh, and then I reached the sort of hubris moment where I thought, wait a minute, I think I could contribute to this area. <laughs> right? So I wrote a, a paper on aesthetic philosophy that I proposed that art is a kind of communication, a form of communication that co-evolves with its own evaluation. And that's uh, specifically um, saying that the preference and the evaluation of the art and the art itself have shaped one another over time. That expression and judgment or beauty and desire or uh, you know, the signal and the, the preference have all shaped one another. So this is specifically a, a post-human way of looking at aesthetic philosophy. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, I think that if we're going to discuss what is art and, and how it works and how it changes, uh, we need to get humans out of the organizing center of that debate to include many, many alternative species like, you know, all the birds and, uh, and bees that forage on flowers and other kinds of examples of aesthetic evolution. So uh, this has a lot of radical downstream consequences, which is to say that, you know, human beings are not the only subjective agents on the planet, that, uh, that birdsong and bird plumages and flowers and, and warning coloration or aposomatic colorations are actually kinds of art. 
I would call them biotic art, equivalent in status to the human arts. And then if you go to cultural arts, like in birdsong, which are aesthetic and cultural, then that really is, it's got many, many of the properties of lots of human art, which is uh, that, you know, I use the examples of people in Chicago and New York and Boston, but I could have said rap in, in Brooklyn, Atlanta, St. Louis, and, and, and Los Angeles, which all got their own rap styles developing. Why? Through, through distance, right? So I really think there's an opportunity for a kind of research that starts with science and continues to areas that are not science that are not uh, – that, uh, that are that, – but that, but that research is contiguous, right? There's no real fine boundary. A lot of people get afraid when science is not clearly defined, right? Mm. right? And yeah. I, I think they are fooling themselves. You know, I mean, you say, well, you know, the idea that science is on an ivory tower that's isolated from the culture, all this from politics, I say from sociology, et cetera. And we'd have to ask, well, how, how's that working for you? Right? I mean, right now we're at a state of unbelievable advances in science and right. unbelievable skepticism. A majority of the culture does not believe in the evolution of human beings, right? A majority, a huge portion of the culture now no longer believes that vaccines are effective and useful, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're, we're failing to, <laughs> in this way. And so uh, I, I don't think they've got a, a, a solution, right? I don't think the ivory tower is working. And, and also I, I think there's a lot to be gained. Yeah. So, so is there objective art? Yeah, I think yeah exactly. The, the, the answer is no, right? I really don't think so. I don't think there's any, any objective standard with something's good. And a, a historian or a philosopher of art would already have agreed with that in the sense that, you know, you look at art that's now revered. The most valuable art on the planet was reviled when it first was, when it was first presented. Um, you know, uh, paintings by Van Gogh that sell for hundreds of thousands or hundreds of, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Have they gone over a hundred million? I think so. hundred million dollars. And, and yet, and yet, and yet he couldn't sell them in his lifetime, right? Or he gave them away. The history of art is filled with that kind of stuff um, where um, the ideas about what's beautiful or what's attractive or what's worthwhile have to, have to catch up, have to co-evolve with the objects through evaluations. Yeah. The, I, one person, Richard Dawkins, comes to mind because he, he probably is a very much adaptation by natural selection operating on the, on the genetic level advocate, I would say. And he has a chapter in one, his book, The Selfish Gene, about cultural memes where he tries to say, you know, if the replica, the, a cultural idea can be replicated and ha- how many minds it's replicated itself in is an indication of its, you know, success or fitness. It, it, does that, do you think that complicates your evaluation of art with aesthetic evolution, noting that someone can describe like the evolution of art <laughs> with adaptation by natural selection. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, a bit of background. Of course, uh, Dawkins uh, invented the word meme mm-hmm. in that chapter, right? And it was particularly to talk about a cultural unit of inheritance, right. an analogy to the gene, but but just learned. And so that's what, the, that's what memes are. And, you know, now even people in second graders know what memes are, right. but right. they don't know what memes are. <laughs> the, the, the word has had a, had a, transformed in a huge way, right? I have no idea whether, what, what Dawkins uh, would think about that. But, um, you know, what Dawkins was trying to do was to extend adaptation by natural selection to another realm, to the cultural realm, and, and also thereby, frankly, uh, colonize and, and take over uh, cultural studies, including socio, social sciences and humanities as, as, as branches, minor ones, of evolutionary biology. You know, I think he was deluded. I think he's fooling himself. <laughs> and, and, and the idea, you know, I mean, all you got to think is like, like, let's go to YouTube and find, uh, you know, some stupid cat video or some video of a guy on a skateboard uh, that does a trick and then lands right with his crotch down on, uh, on the banister up stairway, <laughs> right? And it's like that, you know, it's like and, and these things have been seen billions of times among the most popular images and ideas. And, and, and in what way are they related at all objectively to adaptation by natural selection? Well, yes, memes are differentially popular. But the idea of adaptation by natural selection is that they're not just differentially popular. They're differentially successful at doing something. And that something is advance your survival, fecundity, or, or sexual success, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the propagation of your genes. And, and it's quite clear that, that culture has many properties that just don't have anything to do with that. So I think Dawkins failed uh, in his uh, effort to colonize 
uh, culture studies and take it over. And, and I think he'd probably admit that even today. I think the meme concept as coined by him is actually pretty powerful. Unfortunately, um, the way learning and cultural relevance happens, it's really hard to get that direct mapping to inheritance, right? In other words, people uh, will take two ideas and put them together, transform them, and that, that makes a big, uh, uh, a big problem for the mechanism. You know, idea brains are too flexible for units of inheritance to be really analyzable. So there's are problems with it, applying the meme concept. Uh, it works really well in bird songs and bird song note types. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I would advocate its use in some places, but uh, I think most of the time it's neutral and has nothing to do with adaptation. So just to wrap things up, we talked a lot about um, aesthetic evolution and um, the human influence and the culture among birds. Um, but if there is one thing you would like someone to kind of take away or learn from your work, uh, what would that be? You know, we often think of science as the search for law-like generalizations about nature. And, and, and that applies really well to certain kinds of things like, uh, I don't know, helium <laughs> or, or uh, equations. But um, a huge amount of the world is made up of individuals. And by individuals, I mean anything that has a birth, a duration, a potential reproduction, uh, and a death or an extinction. And the individuals include you and me, uh, uh, you know, my liver, uh, livers, the homologue livers, which had an origin at some point back in the past. It includes all the homologs. It includes genes. Um, and so individuals don't follow laws. And what I mean by that is that they have, they have histories that are contingent. You can't define an individual because they're so capable of change. And so my science is really about a science of individuality. Uh, and I think that in a large part, we've um, – through the embracing you know, definition of science is based in hypothesis testing, for example, we have abandoned our regard for individuality for observation of individuals and the study at the levels of individuals. So uh, historical science, science of individuality is uh, something we need to bring back to science. Another, another just to write about, you know, uh, Ernst Rutherford, a particle physicist of the early 20th century said, all science is either physics or stamp collecting. And, and my, my work as an evolutionary biologist and ornithologist is basically to completely agree and endorse what Rutherford said. But to try to transform what people think of as stamp, stamp collecting, collecting. That, that the science of individuality, of studying individual instances is um, essential to understanding life, the planet and the universe and that we're fooling ourselves if we think that, uh, that it's all physics. Professor Prom, thank thank you so much. I, I'm really sad that we have to we have to end things for for our listeners because um as we've both been researching your work, it's just so fascinating. It has so many impl implications for science at large, uh, and as graduate students, that's obviously relevant. Um, so anyway, thank you, thank you to everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us next month for our next podcast series on attention science. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. And thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Finally, thank you to YJBM Editorial Board and YJBM's Faculty Advisory Board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu backslash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, then please email us at yjbm at yale.edu or tweet to our Twitter handle at the YJBM. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple's podcast app with your friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the YJBM podcast. <laughs>